What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, pop culture podcast. You name it, we discuss it and analyze it. I am very excited to be here today. Can I tell you why I'm excited, Laurel? Is that you okay? You always can. Because I'm always excited, but I have a very specific reason. Recently, the Midnight Myth has been very much engaged in topical conversations around, in particular, major pop culture touchstones, such as Avengers Endgame, which has made us do lots of content around the Marvel Cinematic Universe and our Marvel Cinematic Universe case studies. They've been so much fun. We've been doing bonus episodes about the uh, Game of Thrones. So every new episode of Game of Thrones, we're doing a new bonus episode of Midnight Myth. This has been really cool to be really relevant. But I also love going into our past and plucking something out that's not as topical, that still has amazing things to analyze and discuss. And I'm excited that we're going back in time to talk about a movie that came out in 2001, to talk about a piece of pop culture that had its moment, and to analyze it from our current 2019 contemporary lens. And for that reason, I'm excited to bring our Midnight Myth voice, our Midnight Myth analyzing ability, I don't know if that's the right word, to the 2001 movie Moulin Rouge. Yeah, I'm excited to do this too. It is really nice to reach back and pull something out that has been uh, maybe overlooked by uh, a lot of critical uh, eye. There has definitely been scholarship around this movie and people have had a lot of things to say, but it's also nice to go back and revisit it with what we know now. Um, so I'm excited about it. It's also uh, in June and July, it's going to hit Broadway stages for the first time. The jukebox musical Moulin Rouge is going to be uh, a stage musical, which has been a long time coming and I think will be spectacular, spectacular. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm very excited to go back and talk about this movie. It's something that I hold very dear to my heart and I hope that our listeners do too. If it's something you haven't seen yet, I would definitely go and check it out. It is completely delightful and also uh, completely devastating at the same time. And we'll talk very much about the sort of uh, dual nature of comedy and tragedy that lives within this movie. But it's something that we think is very, very special and worth uh, a closer look. Yeah, I absolutely adore this movie too. I do think it's safe to say that it's a little divisive. There are some Moulin Rouge detractors. There are people that did not like it 
in particular among film critics. There were overwhelmingly positive reviews just reading the reviews back in 2001 for Moulin Rouge. However, the detractors, the reviews that were against it were very harsh. So there is some controversy in terms of the overall goodness or badness of this movie in particular with the critics. I don't know too many fans of music, fans of spectacle, fans of good cinema that disliked it. Most people I know that saw Moulin Rouge, they kind of knew what they were getting into by watching Moulin Rouge and it, it hits a home run and then hits three more right after that. Yeah. So yeah. I think the fans generally like it and the Rotten Tomatoes score kind of um, sort of fleshes that out. It has a 76% critic rating where it has a 89% user rating. Yeah. Yeah. So people it, love it. It has a huge fan following, but a lot of mixed critical response. Yeah. And it was also, a, you know, it was divisive in its time, but it also was widely praised during awards season. It was nominated for uh, nearly a dozen Academy Awards. It won two. Over, uh, overall, I did some research, do yeah. you mind not to interrupt. It was nominated over all the different award shows, over 130 awards. Correct. Yeah. And it won Best Picture at the Golden Globes. Nicole Kidman won a Golden Globe for it. And it won two Oscars as well for art direction and costumes. Um, so it's definitely something that uh, sits with some reverence in our cultural canon uh, and something that I think has retained a, a following over the years. Um before we jump deep into our conversation about it tonight, if you want to engage with us, if you want to add your take, tell us what you thought of Moulin Rouge, what you love about it, what you hate about it, uh, things that you didn't realize about it when you first watch it but realize now, hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, and those are great places to reach out to us. You can also do so at our website, www.midnightmyth.com. And there's a contact form there. You can sign up for our email list to get monthly newsletters from us about new updates. And you can also find out more about our merch store and our Patreon on our website. These are both places where you can uh, support the podcast, which we make for you for free, but uh, we would love to have your support going forward. So if you want a Midnight Myth t-shirt, Midnight Myth mug, something to support the Wheel of Ka, which is our Dark Tower podcast that we do monthly, the merch store is a great place for that. Or you can hit us up on Patreon and pledge a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can each month, and you'll get extra content and uh, merch discounts for that. Fantastic. And I just want to shout out right now to Midnight Myth podcast listeners, TJ and Flavio, for tweeting us. One actually, I think one was on Facebook, one was yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Tweeting us their Midnight Myth merch. Thank you so much. We love you guys. And thank you to our new Patreon supporters. So we have Beth, Mary Liz, Heath, and Flavio are supporting us on Patreon now, which is so meaningful to us having just launched our Patreon page. Uh, thank you so much for supporting us. We can't wait to send you some more content and uh, lots of love to you. If you want to join in, uh, that's a great community of people who are supporting the Midnight Myth podcast. So much good stuff. All right, let's get into the movie. Let's discuss it. We usually, when we talk about a movie, don't do too much recapping. Um, that's just kind of not our style, and we usually don't have time because we have so much analysis. Being that this movie came out in 2001, Laurel, I think a quick recap might be in order. Would you agree with that? 
Yes. Okay, cool. So I'll take the recap here, and you just chime in if I miss anything. Great. Moulin Rouge came out in 2001. The movie takes place in Paris in 1899 amidst a thing called the Bohemian Revolution. It focuses on the two main characters, one being a writer named Christian, who gives up his comfortable life in England to come to Paris to join the Bohemian Revolution and to be a penniless writer. He immediately meets a group of other Bohemians led by a dwarf by the name of Toulouse who enlist him to write a play called Spectacular Spectacular. Things go sideways when Toulouse wants to introduce Christian to Satine, who is one of the lead dancers and courtesans at the Moulin Rouge in Paris. And she confuses him for the Duke who's supposed to be financing the transformation of the Moulin Rouge from a nightclub and brothel into an actual place where there is serious art and plays happening. In this, uh, Christian and Satine fall in love. They have a secret romance when the Duke is financing the play. The whole time the Duke thinks that Satine is bound to him and that she is essentially his you know, personal property, property, personal prostitute, I was going to say, but yeah, property. This all culminates when the Duke realizes that Satine and Christian are actually having a affair to him an affair, but they're in love. And Satine breaks up with Christian and the idea to save him from the Duke's wrath. Meanwhile, Satine has a deadly disease. They don't say what it is. Presumably it's tuberculosis. Yeah. Christian sneaks into the opening night of the play, takes the the lead role in which the play is mimicking the events of the actual main characters in the movie, and uh, he essentially throws money at Satine and says, thank you for being a good prostitute, walks off. She ends up singing the lover's song, Come What May. He sings it. They unite. The other One of the other main characters, Harold, Harold Ziegler, punches the Duke, Everybody's happy, curtain goes down, and Satine dies from her disease in Christian's arms on the stage, and the movie ends. Uh, On the bookends of the very end and beginning of the movie is Christian is writing this story down to record it. It's his first time presumably writing since Satine has died. The movie uses contemporary and sometimes eh, a little older pop music as its source material for all of the musical numbers. It is a musical. It is bright. It is dazzling. And man, is it a tearjerker. And that's our recap. Yeah, it's such a crazy uh, cinematic experience because it navigates uh, slapstick comedy and total farce and ridiculous heightened theatricality with extremely vulnerable and extraordinarily emotional uh, scenes of love and loss and tragedy. And to navigate those turns is, it's so difficult to handle in a way that you can maintain the audience, which in some ways leads to the divisiveness of this movie, but in other ways uh, shows off the technical skill of Baz Luhrmann, who's the visionary director behind it, uh, and really proves what an achievement it is. And I think that speaks to its influences. I think that speaks to uh, the sort of mind behind it uh, and to many of the things that we'll talk about tonight from the history uh, that uh, of this time that it's set into the mythology that it's based in. Great. So where would you like to begin with our discussion? Would you like to, I, I think there is a big metaphor happening in terms of uh, where I see this movie and it is about the quote unquote underworld it's about a journey into the underworld and about characters who are into the underworld trying to journey out 
And I think there is a big mythological tent which this movie is underneath. Would you agree? I would. Um, so I would love to kick off our discussion tonight with the sort of mythological inspiration of this movie. Now, uh, the story of Christian and Satine falling in love follows very closely uh, a novel and an opera called La Traviata. So if you head back to Verdi's opera, La Traviata, it's going to be a very similar plot, similar characters, set in Paris, stars a courtesan who falls in love with uh, you know, a middle-class gentleman, and they can't be together because she needs the financial support of a wealthy baron. So very, very similar there. But that's not where I'm going to begin with the uh, sort of mythological component of this. I... Baz Luhrmann, the director and the, the writer, uh, co-director and writer with a man named Craig, Craig Pierce on this movie, talks about how their sort of structural inspiration was the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, which is super exciting to me because that is my favorite story of all time. I have Orpheus and his lyre tattooed on my back because it's something that's really important to me. And this myth uh, starts with the hero, Orpheus, who is the greatest poet and musician uh, on earth. His music is so sad and so beautiful and so haunting that all the women fall in love with him and that the rocks and the trees and the animals get up and follow him around. Uh, he can bring inanimate objects to life with his ungodly power of music. And he falls in love with a woman or sometimes a nymph named Eurydice. On their wedding day, she treads on a snake, and the snake bites her, and she immediately dies, even though they have just grasped happiness together. Now, Orpheus is unwilling to let her go and follows her into the underworld. He's one of the only mortal men to ever tread uh, into the land of the dead. Now, he meets Hades and Persephone down there and pulls out his lyre and sings a song, and Persephone, the wife of Hades, is so moved by this beautiful music that she wants to give him his wife back. Now, he gets Eurydice back, but on one condition, because Hades is not interested in uh, letting any of his dead souls go. He says, you can have her back if you exit the underworld with her walking behind you, and you don't look back until you both reach the sunlight. And of course, that seems a reasonable condition, but Orpheus has doubts. So as he's walking with Eurydice behind him and Hermes, uh, the messenger god, is uh, sort of tracking the way with him to make sure that everything goes correctly, he begins to doubt that she's really there. He thinks that a trick's been played on her, on him. And he turns around. And at the end of this story, there's no way to really bring the dead back. Once you go to the underworld, once you have had your soul taken, you can't get out. And poor Orpheus still sings, but his songs become sad and everyone cries until he's really torn, he's physically torn apart by maenads. Uh, and I think there's a clear parallel between uh, Orpheus, the great singer of Greek mythology, and Christian, who has this divine power of music that makes the most beautiful woman in Paris fall in love with him in an instant, uh, but who also is so easily deceived at the idea that he can lure her out of this literal underworld or this metaphorical underworld of the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, I love that. I um, Thank you for sharing that. 
I do think that there is a clear calling back to this you know, Greek myth happening in the Moulin Rouge. In particular, a just some textual evidence to back you up there. There is a moment in which um, the Duke is like, hey, I'm going to kill Christian if uh, I can't have Satine. And it's right. right at the end. And Harold Ziegler's just like, you have to hurt him, but to save him. And she's just like, no, we're going to escape. We're going to get away. And Ziegler tells her, you're dying. You are on the verge of death. Save Christian's life. The show must go on. And he says, quote, we are creatures of the underworld. We cannot afford to love, end quote. Yeah. Like, he puts a pin on it that their world of performers, of bohemian music and bohemian acting is a underworld compared to the world of the Dukes and the world of the patrons that are going to go there to support their play. They live in the world of the light, whereas the actors live at the world at night. So many of the scenes happen at night. Yeah. So many of the scenes happen indoors where everyone else is out and about doing things in Paris. They're here preparing this play and Ziegler calls them creatures of the underworld. Yeah, and think about how uh, the Moulin Rouge is introduced in terms of the imagery and the language around it as Christian is narrating uh, how he entered this world. He talks about how it's ruled over by Harold Zidler, and the first images of Harold and his face are somewhat devilish, uh, and so they evoke sort of the Hades um, tradition of being someone who lords over the underworld, and the can-can dancers that he employs, uh, he refers to as his diamond dogs. And that's a David Bowie song, of course, that's incorporated into the can-can sequence. But it also has a light reference to Cerberus, the three-headed dog of the underworld. So they're certainly playing with some of these subconscious uh, symbols of Greek mythology and of the land of the dead being this sort of unpassable gulf to night. And it's notable that Christian, like Orpheus, voluntarily goes into this underworld. Right. He chooses this life. He leaves his comfortable life and home in London. He leaves his more conservative-minded father and decides to descend into this underworld. And in there, he finds love, and he thinks that love will be able to bring Satine out with him. And in truth, you once you are a creature of the underworld you are never allowed to get out. It is the tragedy of this movie that Satine is not able to escape the underworld. She's not able to become a creature of light. She has to stay there permanently. And even though she finally is able to sing the lover's song and to tell Christian that, yes, she does love him fully and completely and passionately, it's not enough to save them. Yeah. And... In that way, Christian's entire motus operandi, his entire philosophy is that all you need is love, is ultimately, tragically, and you know, horrifyingly not true. It is yeah. his fatal flaw that there is something about being pragmatic. There is something about having some creature comforts. There is something to it that Christian is ultimately wrong because the love does not save him nor Satine. Yeah, the love cannot sustain you in the way that modern medicine or food or having money to you know have a place to live uh, can sustain a person. And that is tragic to see that uh, sort of philosophical conflict between those characters 
uh, break down in such a way because we buy in and so does Satine even though she's there involuntarily she doesn't want to be a creature of the underworld she wants to fly away but she buys into the idea that maybe love is all I need and that bubble gets burst for her um, the only sort of redeeming quality that I can ascribe to Christian's philosophy of all you need is love is where he arrives uh, in finding the inspiration to write again. Uh, and I think it comes from the, the line that's iterated over and over again in this film from the song Nature Boy, the greatest, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Uh, it at least says that even though this tragedy happened, it was worth it because I did experience the greatest thing that I will ever learn. And I have now this love that will live forever, even though Satine did not. And that's, uh, I think, a direct callback as well, even though they're you know, uh, incorporating this song that was written many decades ago. Uh, it's a callback to Ovid in his Metamorphoses as he describes the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. He has a line about at the end of it where he says, quote, Eurydice, dying now a second time, uttered no complaint against her husband. What was there to complain of but that she had been loved, end quote. And I think in the end it says, you know, this tragedy was awful and it didn't work out for anyone, but it was a worthwhile endeavor to have this love at all. I love that. Aww. Speaking of love. Yeah. I think that is a very astute and very great way to look at it. Yes, it is still worthwhile to love, even if it can't save you from death. Right. Even if it can't save you from a lifetime of prostitution and a lifetime of being exploited and manipulated, it is still worth it to love. Even if once that love leaves you, it'll put a hole in your heart that'll never fully heal. Ugh. It was still worth it to have that silly day. Yeah. I totally love that take on it. Um, Let's uh, let's keep going into this because I'm I'm enjoying where we're at here. I I walked away from this movie with a few different meditations as well. So I love that mythological influence, but I yeah. want to talk a little philosophy if that's okay. Let's with you. do it because I think there is a anytime you have creative professionals who are doing a movie about another creative profession. Oh yeah. So when you have moviegoers making a movie about making a play, there is both a level of metatextuality, so it's a text within a text, yeah. which is really interesting and cool. And in particular in this one, the play, Spectacular Spectacular, mimics the events of the, the actual characters and right. what they're going through, and that they're all very linked. And in the end, there's an evil plan yeah. for the... the for the courtesan and the sitar player, which ends up then pushing apart Christian and Satine yeah. and the magical sitar player who always speaks the truth to bring them back is Toulouse, who in the, the crux of the play speaks the line that makes them both want to sing their lover's song. But in that, I, I think there are some big questions being asked. So one of the big questions being asked is what is beauty? And if there are four tenements to the Bohemian philosophy that we see here, beauty, freedom, truth, and love. And I think of all of those, the love is the one that they don't really need to define because... Right. It's like oxygen. It's a many splendored thing. Exactly right. 
we all know what love is. We felt love, whether that's love for your pet or love for your parents or love for your wife. You know, people have felt this emotion and, and love is very guttural. But beauty, freedom, and truth are a little harder to define. Mm. I'd say that freedom is a little easier. It can be defined in a constitution that gives freedom to the individuals. It's significant that this movie takes place in a historical era in which, especially in Europe, all of the old regimes, e.g. the monarchs, are waning or leaving or giving up constitutional authority that there is now the idea that the individual can be free, people are getting the right to vote, all of this is happening in Europe at this time. And truth is can be elusive and difficult to define, but it's a little easier because there's always the binary between something being true and something being false. Truth can be very can be proven verifiably experimentally and through, you know, science. This movie takes place post-scientific revolution. So this is a world that has electricity and medicine closer to ours than, you know, 50 years before it. But beauty still remains the more elusive element to this. Mm. How do we define beauty? And I do believe that this movie is in direct dialogue, I think, artistically with the ancient Greeks. Now, the ancient Greeks debated these ideas. Now, we would call them aesthetics, and that's a word that came about originally, I want to say, around the time that this movie was supposed to take place. It's a very modern term. Okay. You know, it's a very new term, but there are some several major works of art, or I'm sorry, works of philosophy that discuss art and philosophies that are around them. But most important to the philosophy of beauty comes first from Plato, then developed by Aristotle, and then even then taught by the Stoics. And this is a, a word called uh, symmetria. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's where we get the term symmetry from. Oh, so it's how we come to the idea that things are symmetrical. And that means that things have a certain balance to them. There's a symmetry. Things look cohesive. It's the idea that a beautiful face looks the same on the left side as right. it does on the right, right side of it. Things are symmetrical or in the, per, un, under the philosophical belief of symmetria. And that is what true beauty is. And that's where true beauty comes from. Well, rewatching this movie from the idea of like how symmetrical is its art direction. And if you just watch any scene, it's, it's not like a Wes Anderson where the symmetry is so in your face, you can't help but notice it, but it's everywhere. There are, there are, everything is set up with fours with equal poles in them. So whether that is Toulouse hanging down from the elephant with one person holding, then two on the other side of the other people holding them, whether that's the scene in which you have uh, Christian, and this is in The Elephant, where you have Christian and uh, Satine coming together when they finally kiss, that yeah. they're both in the poles of the heart, and the, other, and the heart then just explodes and with color. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that symmetrically happens is there's so many circles, whether it's in the dancing whether it's in the camera shots that circle around people, whether it's in the the dresses that have a symmetrical shape to them, and that it's playing with this idea of symmetry. I think it's the linchpin, because at first glance, this movie is crazy. Oh, yeah. So Visually, much going on. Yeah. So much going on, but it, it is a very ordered craziness. Everything is very deliberate. It's not random, and it's very symmetrical. I think that adds to its weight and beauty. So I think there is a 
art direction style in dialogue with that theory of sumateria. I think I, I love that because visually, yes, it is calling on these uh, sort of ordered and organized moments of chaos. And it's also, uh, you know, it's opened with and closed with a red curtain. Uh, we're viewing a lot of this through a proscenium arch as though we are watching it on the stage. And many parts of this film we are watching on a traditional proscenium stage. Uh, and Baz Luhrmann calls this the sort of closer of his red curtain trilogy of three films that he made, including Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet, that deal with a heightened uh, and more theatrical sense of rendering life. Uh, this one being, you know, his his great musical, where music is the language of love in this story, and it is visually represented by that sort of theatrical symmetry. I think that's great. But then, of course, there's story symmetry as well. When we talk about the convention of the play within a play, with the uh, characters of the actual narrative uh, framing these archetypical uh, sort of stereotypes of their characters in Spectacular Spectacular. Oh, yeah. Well, so we can go a little deeper in that. So in Symmetry, there is the Duke and Ziegler. Yeah. Who are kind of equal opposites. There's Christian, and then there's Toulouse. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the troupe, who are both you know, supposed to be the inspirations and the creatives and you know, the people that everyone looks up to where Toulouse is a little silly and drunkenly where Christian's a little more serious and emotional. But they're also both voluntarily impoverished uh, artists who have chosen to come into this world and are semi outsiders within it. More on that later. More on that we'll later. Put a pin yeah. on that and come back to it. Um, then there is Christian and Satine who are very much a symmetrical forces that they are the lovers the, 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 the troop of people that Christian meets has Toulouse, the Argentinian, the other guy with the hat. Satie and the, um, the old bohemian electrician. Yeah. Right. They have the four of them that are right. all like that four character ensemble doing little different equal and opposites. Um, so there's symmetry all in what yeah. also in terms of the story structure that I think adds to its inherent beauty. But other than this movie being a musical, the only other genre you'd say it is, is a tragedy. And so then there is a question is, is a tragedy beautiful or how can a tragedy be beautiful? Or even should it be beautiful if we find it to be beautiful? Hmm. To which Aristotle wrote extensively about in a book called Poetics that has survived to us today. And in it, Aristotle describes that the tragedy is one of the highest forms of art because of catharsis. And that can be difficult to understand. A catharsis essentially means an emotional release. Yeah, it's a purge of emotion. Yeah. But then in what case, what type of emotion? So I'm glad that you mentioned that. So first thing to understand, and I found a really fascinating article about Aristotelian tragedy on a website uh, that's called the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is peer-reviewed. And I found a essay on there by this professor named Sox who was at St. John's college and it was fascinating and I would recommend anyone interested in it to take a look at it. Um, he argues in this that catharsis as the way we understand the word, it means specifically an emotional purge. And he argues that purging emotions isn't really what we're going for in a tragedy and nor was Aristotle's intention. One of the uh, examples was a horror movie 
A horror movie gives us a cathartic reaction that's a purge. Fear and terror, we feel it. It's in a controlled environment. And then at the end of the movie, it, because it was entertaining, we get to purge that fear from us. So the other way that potentially we could look at catharsis is that maybe it isn't a purging, but a purification, which means that we're not flushing the sadness away, but we are leaving the most undesirable parts of it behind by going through the process of catharsis in a tragedy in a play. But even then he found this a little unsettling because then it reduces the tragedy to just the training and sharpening of emotions. So let's get rid of the worst parts of the emotion and let's redefine it so that we can feel sadness better. So maybe that's not what it is because we don't want to train our emotions because that is inherently unbeautiful. I'll give you a quote from this essay. Aristotle is insistent that a tragedy must be whole and one because only in that way can it be beautiful. While he also ascribes the superiority of tragedy over epic poetry to its greater unity and concentration, tragedy is not just a dramatic form in which some works are beautiful and others are not. Tragedy is itself a species of beauty. All tragedies are beautiful. Whoa. And oh, hence, whoa. they all give us that catharsis. And it's inherently a beautiful thing to witness the tragedy. In this, he develops the five marks of a tragedy. And I'll quote again. By following Aristotle's lead, we have found five marks of tragedy. One, it imitates an action. Two, it arouses pity and fear. Yeah. Three, it displays the human image as such, meaning as such as it is both pitiful and fearful. And four, it ends in wonder. And five, it is inherently beautiful. Well, let us ask these five pillars of tragedy and let's compare them to the Moulin Rouge. One, it imitates an action. Yes, several actions. The actions of making a play, the actions of falling in love, the actions of betraying a powerful, powerful aristocrat. All of these are imitations of actions. Sure, Acting yeah. is an imitation of action. Two, it arouses pity and fear. Who does not feel for Christian and Satine when she is almost going to sleep with the Duke when she decides that she wants to save the end of the play because the Duke wants to rewrite it so that the Maharaja ends up with the courtesan and not the Penny the Sitar player. We feel pity. Who does not feel fear when the Duke, when she realizes, when she says, finally, I can't sleep with you, I do love Christian, and the Duke tries to rape her? Who does not feel fear in that scene? Absolutely. Three, it displays the human image as such. Humans having pity and fear. Well, do we not see that everywhere in this play? Or yeah, in this we movie? see Christian who we think is a really admirable and uh, you know person of high character succumbing to jealousy and rage and uh, these fearful uh, emotions that we, we want to save him from but can't. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And even as such, do we not feel pity and fear in the way that Siegler lies and manipulates people? Mm -hmm. Is he not afraid to tell Satine the truth about her diagnosis? Right. And does that not make us pity both him and her? Right. And then lastly, or no, second to lastly, it ends in wonder. We watch spectacular, spectacular. 
there's no end to a movie as wonderful as this one is. And then lastly, and most importantly, it is inherently beautiful. I think that's fantastic to apply those Aristotelian uh, poetics to Moulin Rouge as, you know, this sort of exemplar of tragedy, uh, which is is so fascinating because we, so we went back and rewatched this recently thinking that we wanted to watch something really fun and light and pretty. And it, this happens every time I rewatch Moulin Rouge because I've seen it now countless times. And every time I'm like, yeah, I'm going to watch my fun favorite movie, Moulin Rouge. And then I remember that it's a devastating tragedy. And that's because it is able to handle these, uh, these moments of almost just completely insane and irrational lightness uh, right next to uh, these just heart-wrenching moments of sadness and, and loss. And that's very much, um, you can see that very much in Baz Luhrmann's uh, history as an opera director, but also the influence of Bollywood on this movie. Uh, in literal sequences like Spectacular Spectacular, which is set in India and has these Bollywood-style dance sequences, but in the um, juxtaposition, and that, that is almost absurd and surreal of uh, lightness and darkness uh, in a way that uh, takes you out of the realism but reminds you once again that you're watching a piece of theater. You're watching... Uh, art, not reality, and you can get lost in the uh, the blurring of the distinctions there. Totally, and I think we need to rethink, as argued by this article that I read, we need to rethink the catharsis of tragedy as a purge, as a purging of the emotion, because I feel more pity and fear and love and joy and sadness because I watched Moulin Rouge. I don't feel released from them. Could there be some element of, yes, there's maybe some subconscious desires that I can feel released because these characters went through loss that I can then confront my own? Sure, but that is to say that it's unbeautiful by its very nature. And I think it's time for us to recognize that its nature is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that that to watch sadness, that to, to feel and to experience and to witness uh, darkness and loss can be, you know, just some of the most powerful uh, and most affecting emotion on the human condition. Yeah. And I will tell you one of the most pleasurable aspects of the Midnight Myth as a co-host and co-creator and co-founder is that I've gotten to engage with aesthetic philosophy in a way that I've never engaged before this project. And asking yourself the big question of what is beauty, what is art, and trying to reconcile and find the answers to that through pieces of art that you love. It's one of the great joys. It's why I do this podcast, and I, it's why I love the, the Moulin Rouge, and I, it's just been a blast. Speaking of beauty and the study of beauty, we have, uh, we've hit mythology, we've hit philosophy. If it's okay with you, I would love to hit the other tenet of the Midnight Myth podcast in history. You know I'm okay with that. And talk about the time period in which Moulin Rouge is set, which is known as La Belle Epoque, um, which is also translated in French as the beautiful era. Uh, it's also, it's 1899 to 1900, so it is la fin de siècle. It is the turn of the 20th century. This uh, is a time period that is now considered uh, one of the greatest golden ages 
of the modern period. And it dates from right around the end of the Franco-Prussian War uh, in 1871 through to the start of World War I. Uh, of course, Europe after 1914 will uh, sustain several decades of warfare and uh, political unrest. So looking back on this era, even though it was characterized very much by forward-thinking progress, by optimism, by peace and prosperity relatively, it's even more looked at in a golden light because of the horrors of war that came after all over Europe and all over the world. So preceding La Belle Epoque, Paris really became the city that we know it as today. Uh, it was redesigned and renovated by a, uh, an architect and a city planner known as Hausman, uh, and he's the guy who transformed it from medieval neighborhoods to the grand boulevards, the walkable neighborhoods, the green spaces and parks that we see today, and the limestone constructions that make it this really unified, symmetrical, uh, and, and singular place to be. So this is all right leading up to the time period that uh, Moulin Rouge is set in. And fashion and art and literature are exploding. There is an emerging class known as the nouveau riche, new money, um, and they are living alongside aristocrats as this high-class, uh, high-Parisian society, and entertainment is becoming more and more sophisticated on that side of the world. However, this was not accessible to everyone, and there was a huge underclass, a, uh, a working class that gravitated to areas like Montmartre that was not able to access these uh, parts of high-Parisian society. And this is where the uh, nightclubs and the dance halls and the burlesques and the cabarets started to take hold and become mainstream popular culture. And the sort of lightning rod locations for these were uh, nightclubs like the Folie Bergère or of course the Moulin Rouge. Uh, these were real underworlds where a new kind of art was taking shape and though it was viewed as uh, low culture, it became very, very popular and very beloved by these people. And as you see it in the movie Moulin Rouge, it's not just frequented by the poor of Montmartre, but by rich uh, nouveau riche and aristocrats who want to come and indulge in this nightlife and this uh, sort of dark, low culture aspect to uh, the outskirts of Parisian society. But naturally, these places became a hotbed and a cultural center for this bohemian revolution. And I'd love to spend just a few moments talking about bohemianism. Sure. And about the sort of people who were drawn to this uh, this revolution. Yeah, let's do it. But before we, we do that, just to say, we are lucky enough that we've been to Paris and we have seen the actual Moulin Rouge. We have, And yeah. I just wanted to bring that up. It, it's really cool. And Montmartre is a very charming place to be now, of course, and it's touristy, but it was a place that was... Uh, as you see it in the opening sequences of this film, it was poor, it was a little bit dirtier, it was not the uh, grand boulevards of central Paris that you uh, you know see with the Eiffel Tower and uh, the Louvre Museum and places like that. Correct, correct. So uh, bohemianism is interesting. We have uh, it characterized in this film by freedom, beauty, truth, and love. These artists who get together, even though they're penniless, they're going to make something that will change the world. And in reality, yes, those were some of the you know gravitating ideals that people were drawn to. But the term bohemian is a terrible misnomer, and it draws attention to a lot of the sort of interesting hypocrisies of the movement. 
Bohemian, of course, refers to Bohemia, which is a region of the modern-day Czech Republic or the Czech lands. But it became associated with this movement because in France, uh, as this economic divide was growing between the higher and lower classes, poor artists and sort of struggling creators were moving into neighborhoods populated by Romani people, uh, or the Roma, or colloquially, they're sometimes pejoratively known as gypsies. Uh, that's a term we don't like to use now, but that's kind of how they were referred to then. But there was another term for them, which was bohemian in French, because it was assumed that these people uh, came in the 1500s to France from Bohemia, which is absolutely not true. Most sources, most evidence points to them being of Indian origin, which is another interesting um, parallel to this movie. But people were drawn to the sort of nomadic lifestyle and the uh, perceived shucking of uh, social norms. And we're like, oh, we'll create our counterculture around uh, the bohemian ideals. So there's a little bit of a fetishization of this marginalized group that um, young artists were starting to cling to. And a lot of that was voluntary poverty. So there were people like Christian who were like, I will leave my middle class comfortable situation to go and live this penniless existence. And one of the people who best exemplified this was Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, who is a character in this film, but he was a real person, obviously. I love that how so many of these characters yeah. in, in Moulin Rouge are actually based off of real people. And I also love in just a fun reversal how much you're into the history portion of this particular <laughs> podcast, which is usually my domain. But, you know, Paris is your wheelhouse and your baby. So I love all of the the history love you're throwing on this movie. And I just had to say that. I am a little bit of a Francophile. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, topic for me, La Belle Epoque. Because it's also where Art Nouveau was born. It's also, you know, where so much great music was coming out of... Uh, out of this part of the world, and it's a, a really interesting sort of cultural hotbed. But Toulouse-Lautrec, I think, to, to spend a little bit of time with him at the end of this podcast, it's interesting to see this character who, um, there was an earlier film called Moulin Rouge that is basically a, a biopic of this character, and in this film, he's, he's very much relegated to the sides. He's very much an outsider to the lover's story. And if we're in keeping with the sort of Orphic uh, connections and structure to this film. He's a bit of a Hermes character because he's kind of the guide into the underworld, or he could even be the sort of ferryman to the land of the dead because he helps Christian to infiltrate this world through his voluntary poverty to uh, get into the underworld. Uh, he bears him across the threshold, to borrow some things we've said on the podcast before. Uh, and he himself lives outside of the world, but he's been able to successfully infiltrate it. Yeah, wasn't he the real person, not necessarily the character in the movie, but the real person was a aristocrat, right? Yes, so he was the son of wealthy aristocrats in France, and had he outlived his father, he would have inherited a huge estate and enormous amount of money. And he was a uh, reasonably successful painter and artist who is best known for his uh, marketing posters for the Moulin Rouge, uh, but he did sell a, a good deal of paintings in his day, and he was bankrolled by his parents, who sent him to classically train as an artist. So even though he 
uh, you know, sits right inside that sort of impoverished freedom, beauty, truth, and love ideal, he could go back to that estate at any moment. So he's very much on the fringes of it. Uh, he also suffered you know, constant health problems. He had genetic disorders. He had a disorder that is still mysterious, but sometimes is known as Toulouse-Lautrec syndrome, and that's that his bones didn't heal properly when they broke as uh, a young man, uh, and they stopped growing at uh, a young age when he was a teenager. So he ended up with the upper body of a man and the legs of a child. Uh, and he was very much constantly mocked for having that uh, disorder and for looking different uh, and developed alcoholism, contracted syphilis, just had an enormous amount of health problems because of it. But absolutely had this um, wild sort of underworld life that he lived with these, uh, you know, these people of the Moulin Rouge and the women of the brothels and beyond. Um, and I think it's beautifully exemplified in the sort of way that this character frames and is sitting on the outskirts of this as we're watching the slow tragedy of this character uh, on the outside of the lover's story. Um, this was the last year of his life. In, in real life, this character died in... 1900. He was committed in 1899 and died in 1900, but this happens invisibly within the movie as we're watching the tragedy of him. Uh, he says to Christian in one, uh, one scene, he says, Christian, you may see me only as a drunken, vice-ridden gnome whose friends are just pimps and girls from the brothels, but I know about art and love, if only because I long for it with every fiber of my being. Uh, and I just think it's it's a it's an important thing to meditate on, the sort of uh, quiet tragedies that happen just off stage from the big and bombastic ones, the spectacular, spectacular love stories that fall apart are often those uh, you know, that we overlook because we're laughing at them or we uh, don't see them as the stars of their own show. That is a very beautiful point, and I love that you illustrate that. And thank you so much for bringing you know, the history to this podcast, I think it is important to note that a lot of the great artistic moments of human history are characterized by a few general sociological trends and historical trends. And those are, you know, low mortality rates for infants, high life expectancy rates for adults, growth in population, growth in urbanization, and when you see these things happen, you also see with them the bubbling up of new artistic movements. This is true of the Italian Renaissance. This is true of pre-World War I Europe, that these things are happening because of new technologies and new innovations, a high level of urbanization and a high level of um, you know, quality of life leads to people being able to have the time and resources and energy to explore higher truths such as beauty, truth, freedom, and love. In particular, understanding that the real characters Toulouse was a tragedy and was a horrible, terrible life cut short in many ways, some literal with his disease, some also literal with how he died. And I think it's a really amazing meditation of when you put something like the Moulin Rouge out there, when you make a piece of art such as this, what it can reap and what it can sow down the line. And I think the Moulin Rouge is aware of that in that it takes 
popular songs genuinely considered to be a quote unquote lower form of art. And it uses them as the backbone to all of the musical numbers in the show. And from that transforms them from the quote unquote lower form of art to a quote unquote Oscar worthy form of art or a higher form of art, which leads us to a natural question to say, well, why shouldn't Elton John and Madonna be considered a higher form of art? Why shouldn't Nirvana and the police and David Bowie and David yeah. Bowie, what separates them from Mozart and, or Ravel or yeah. And in truth, it's how we view them more so than that. That music lacks any one truth and or lacks the qualities you know, we had this conversation before recording this podcast, and I'll hearken back to it. The song that gets Christian and Satine to fall in love, that Elton John song, why isn't that one of the most perfect expressions of true love ever? Why should we consider that a low form of popular culture when it inspired these two characters to fall in love and by us fall in love with the movie, yeah. those emotions are fucking real. And that song was chosen because they had this Orpheus character who had to have a almost magical quality and an almost magical talent for moving people with music. And they tried to write their own poetry. They tried to write their own songs. And then they said, no, we're, we're not able to conjure, you know, magical abilities of music right now. So why don't they're we, not Elton John. So why don't we pull some, you know, magical music from the actual time period? And that wasn't resonating correctly either. And they said, okay, well, what's, you know, what's going to make this woman fall in love with this man? And what works for us? What makes us fall in love? Well, it's Elton John. It's David Bowie. It's, uh, it's Whitney Houston. Uh, and it, very clearly uses anachronism and contemporary pop popular music to make a comment on the uh, the divide between high and low culture. Uh, as we're watching the Moulin Rouge try to become a reputable institution, try and turn itself into a theater where they're producing the most forward-thinking uh, performance in the world and stop being thought about as you know this underworld or this underbelly of society. Uh, this film is elevating pop music uh, and commenting on the fact that if they had gone period appropriate, they would have just been playing the pop music of the day and says that our pop music is more immortal than we give it credit for in many cases. Uh, and I think there's a sort of meta uh, commentary on Baz Luhrmann's work, which is that he is often criticized for being all flash and no substance or being overly kitsch or overly campy. And uh, I think, yes, he is kitsch and he is campy and he is very flashy in terms of the uh, spectacle that he likes to produce. But, you know, he adapted Romeo and Juliet, uh, which is Shakespeare, which was low culture in its time. It was accessible to all and it is now revered as some of the greatest art uh, in the Western canon. And he, you know, produced opera previously, and opera at its peak was viewed as the lowest of the low. And I think there is uh, something being blurred about the line between high and low culture here that says that kitsch and camp and smut and trash are actually just as valuable to us as the things we perceive as inaccessible and high society. And if we keep in mind that tragedy is inherently beautiful, and if we keep in mind that 
beauty is followed from the perp, the, the process of symmetry. And if we keep that in mind, whether it's accessible or whether it is elitist or whether it is going to make a billion dollars at the box office or no one's ever going to see it are irrelevant questions to whether or not it's beautiful. Cause if something can be beautiful and popular and accessible and mainstream and something can be ugly that is elitist and sophisticated that those are fundamentally different questions and this movie is really concerned with doing beauty as tragedy with making love linked to sadness with creating a symmetrical and amazing cinematic experience that is undeniably gorgeous and because of that, when we pause and we look back, the lesson I learned, I'll take, I'll take everyone here a little memory lane with Derek. I used to be a musician. At least I, pers- I wanted to be a musician by, by profession. I wanted to make music. In particular, I'm a percussionist and to get paid for it. And my God, did younger Derek look down on popular music. <laughs> my God, did yeah. he like... If it was popular and played on the radio and everyone knew this, the words, did I like wave my nose at it and be like, no, that's not really art. And one of the things that Moulin Rouge teaches me now watching it in 2019 is that there's so much more art than I was ever willing to give credit to a lot of beautiful music as long as you're willing to see its inherent beauty. And does this mean all popular music is the greatest art out there? Oh my God, no. no. No, you know, but there's more out there than I ever gave it credit for. More great artwork, I should say, out there than I ever gave credit to or for. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Well, do you have any last points here? Uh, We have covered everything I wanted to get to. Gosh, there's so much to say about this movie. And, uh, you know, you can watch it again and again and always find something new and surprising or uh, funny or sad. And you can watch each character's journey uh, from a new perspective each time. And I'm just grateful that it, uh, this love story exists. It's one of my favorite love stories in all of cinema. And uh, I'm I'm so glad that we were able to find the history, mythology, and philosophy underneath it. And until next time, guys, be kind. Come what may, be kind. Be kind.